Hi there, and welcome to the latest edition of Bali. I'm Carolyn April, and I'm looking for my buddy Seth Robinson. Seth? Hey, how you doing? It's our it's our July 4th edition of Bali. Yes. Happy birthday, America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, there was a lot of talk in the office this week uh, about July 4th falling on a Tuesday. And I think July 4th is like one of the weirdest holidays. Like you've got Memorial Day and Labor Day that always fall on Monday. Thanksgiving is always set. And then Christmas moves around, but it's at the end of the year. And so people tend to take a big chunk. But here for the next few years, we'll have July 4th on like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which uh, which makes people, you know, have to take an extra day if they want the weekend or, or whatever. So um, I'm taking an extra day for sure, but uh, it is a little weird that it falls in the middle of the week. Yeah, that's never fun. I agree. Uh, I'm going to take Monday uh, off too so as not to have to have a um, a break in the middle of the weekend and then in, to the holiday. And, uh, and then I'm going to take the day after fourth off as well. Which I think you are too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it'll be a nice, it'll be a nice little break. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm ready for it. June was crazy. I got myself signed up for more webinars and presentations than I really meant to, and uh, it just turned very busy. So I'm ready to be done with that. Yep. Well, hopefully July will be a little bit more mellow before we head into our event um, at the very end of the month. Mm-hmm. Uh, Channel Con. So I'm hoping the next couple of weeks are a little quieter than June. You're right. June was a nutty little month. And here we are. We're going to wrap it up with, with our podcast. First thing to talk about is almost a little old now because it happened like within hours or, or maybe simultaneously with us recording two weeks ago. Um, that was Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. Uh, so it's it's been talked about for quite a bit and We've got a few different articles that we want to highlight here that we'll put in the show notes uh, that we've we've been sending each other that I think give three good takes on the situation. Uh, and you sent me this first one from Slate. So do you want to kind of walk through the the premise of this article? Sure. I mean, the, the, the Slate article, and I forgive me, I don't remember who, who the author was, um, but... You know, it really, um, I think its take would be best described as finding a way for Amazon to marry its online world to this offline brick and mortar world uh, of the Whole Foods markets. Now, they bought Whole Foods, obviously, it was a huge deal, 13 and, and a half billion dollars, something along those lines. I think Whole Foods has like 400 or 500 stores. Um, but the, the take that the interesting part of this article was that it wouldn't just be that Amazon would get into the grocery business and people would be shopping online, but that in addition to that, so if people are placing a grocery order online, they would be picking it up physically at the Whole Foods store. And while there, they could conduct other Amazon type business. Um, so uh, any of you who've bought clothes online and, and tried them on and they don't fit, it's pain to return things. I find, I, I mean, I'm going to tell this story, this is embarrassing, but I literally have two dresses that I ordered online, you know, click the size I thought was my size, and they got here and they were just woefully wrong in a million ways. But 
returning them. I'm just really bad at this. I should not shop for clothes online because I'm terrible at returning them. So I lost the label and then I didn't know where that was. And it's just packaging stuff back up and getting the FedEx guy to come back or dropping it off somewhere. So the premise of this article was that, you know, this, Amazon knows that and, and it also costs shipping. You know, it's, it's expensive for them to go and do returns. Um, because for ship for shipping companies especially, uh, they get nothing out of that. Um, they go pick it back up um, from you. So the premise here in the Slate article was that you go, you place your online grocery order, then you go to the, uh, to Whole Foods to pick it up. It's already all packaged up for you, so that's great and convenient. You swing by on your way home. But say you had an article of clothing like me, um, you had just throw it in the back of your car, and when you go pick up your groceries, you can then return that there. That'd be this, some sort of Amazon kiosk or whatever. And it's all about convenience and making things as convenient as possible. And of course, you know, upselling and cross-selling. We'll talk a lot about that and some of the about uh, the other articles that we're going to talk about. But uh, I thought that was my biggest takeaway from the Slate article. Right. He talked in this article about uh, the last mile, that that's, that's right. an issue for a lot of these online retailers. And it's, it's been an issue for a lot of different types of industries and companies for a while, figuring out that last mile, that last connection where the costs can, can suddenly skyrocket as all of a sudden – you know, you're you're leaving the distribution centers and you're trying to get to all of these individual points, uh, and and I think that you described it really well that that the the purchase of Whole Foods and getting all of these prime real estate physical locations was a way of doing that, and, and so his take on it was that as Amazon is like blending the online and offline activities that this purchase of Whole Foods was primarily about solving this last mile issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he might have not said that it was primarily about it, but that was his his take on it. And I think that that is certainly one aspect. To me, it was kind of, it's it's a tactical thing. Um, like, as Amazon is is wanting to extend some of the core things that we think about Amazon already doing, um, how can they how can they solve some of the problems that they might have with their model? Um, and so from from the slate article, which again we'll we'll link to all of these in the show notes, um, that was the take there was it was solving this last mile issue or it was at least beginning to alleviate it. Yep, and I, and I think that that's a, a genuine real problem for not just Amazon but other companies that are, are in e-commerce, for instance. Uh, it's it, the last mile issue is definitely sticky. Um, you've got, you know, delivery people who come to homes where a signature might be required, and they have to come back multiple times. All of that just, you know, bleeds money out, and it's inefficient. Uh, so anything that can bridge that very last step in getting a good or a service to a customer, and Amazon is thinking smartly here, I think, uh, is going to go a long way to helping the business. Yeah. The second article is one that I sent you that I came across from Stratechery, which is Ben Thompson's outfit, uh, and I read his stuff quite a bit and listen to his podcast, Exponent, and uh, he had a different take on it. Again, I think that all three of these, in one way or another, are looking at the way that Amazon is approaching the blending of online and offline, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think... Ben's take and Ben's approach was that groceries have been an area that have been that's been very difficult for Amazon to touch with their existing models. That that their existing models 
are built on distribution centers and, and things that aren't exactly optimized for getting fresh produce and fresh groceries on the shelves for people to come and look at and choose. And, and not just did they want to get into that market, but the way that he framed it is that they want to approach that market with their Amazon secret sauce and trying to modularize everything, but they really need a customer to do that. Um, and for a long time, Amazon has been their own customer, whether it's their e-commerce stuff or Amazon Web Services that, that supports that. They've been able to kind of build a flywheel there, and, and they didn't have that with groceries, with this area of, of retail and a lot of people's spending habits that, that is, is a big part of, of what they don't have captured within Amazon today. Um, and so his view was that they were purchasing Whole Foods in order to just buy their way into this market in order to apply some of the things that they would like to apply. And then that can start being expanded to other components um, of food delivery or, or economic activity in general that they really haven't been able to capture with their current model. Yeah, I, his, I think his take was interesting. Um, I had to read it a couple of times just to make sure I understood it all. But I, I like the, the, the thought of them sort of replicating the model that they have for Amazon Web Services, the model they have for Amazon Prime, and, and making sure that they have that customer who you, as you mentioned correctly, and as he says in his piece, is uh, has typically been Amazon itself, at least, you know, and, and, and having that uh, customer in place enables them to then go ahead and jump into a market and then scale it. And then other customers, of course, get added after the fact. But I do think that this is going to, like he said, it's going to scale beyond. This isn't just about the physical stores and, 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 and um, getting customers to go there, but that they could get into a whole bunch of tangential businesses um, as a result once they've got, created this customer base, being themselves, uh, getting into home delivery of groceries. Uh, he sees that as definitely something that's going to happen. Becoming a restaurant supplier. Um, I think that would be another lucrative lucrative area. Uh, so yeah, I thought the way that he broke it down was very interesting. Right. The, the home delivery angle, I think, is an interesting one because I think that's something that Amazon's been exploring for a while. But because the, the grocery space is different than a lot of their other space, it's made it difficult for them to, to enter it and, and to kind of scale out. And so mm -hmm. this now enables them to... Uh, to, to have that customer to, to scale those efforts, uh, even if it, it continues to be what they've been doing before, now they can leverage a lot of the things that Whole Foods would bring to the table uh, in, in order to, to make that business work a little bit better. Yeah, one of the most interesting, interesting things he said, I, I think, is that Amazon really owns the retailer, retail consumer today. Um, it, you think of all the categories on Amazon um, that you can buy from electronics to clothes to you name it. But groceries, which he said it makes up 20% of all consumer purchases, uh, and I'm, I believe that would be in North America or in the United States, that's not an area that they've owned at all. And by, by buying Whole Foods and owning, beginning to own that customer, um, they take away the one thing that uh, these 20% of consumers do uh, typically now is that they go to a different retailer than Amazon uh, and that gives them the idea that there are alternatives out there so if they are now going for to Amazon for groceries 
um, they're blind to the other retailers. And it's, I mean, it's a little sinister if you think about it. Um, but, but it's savvy as well. And I never thought about it that way. It's like, oh, I go to Amazon for everything. I buy this here, that, you know, name the good. But, you know, I go grocery shopping at X store. And so I see that's, that's a separate reality. That's not, you know, that and Amazon don't blend together. By doing this, Amazon takes that alternative away from the consumer psychology. And that kind of leads into the the final article uh, that was just posted yesterday on the New York Times, kind of making the the argument that this purchase from Amazon was really about getting data, just collecting data on people that are making purchases so that they can better serve the the purchasing habits of, of that consumer whether those habits are online or offline, which are, are beginning to blend. Well, no, they're not beginning to blend. They have been blending for a long time, and, and the lines have gotten very, very blurry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that you know, overlapped some of these other, these other two articles uh, a little bit, but the, the data focus was interesting, that they're wanting to gather data and as much as we talk about privacy and you know Google or Apple or, or whoever it might be gathering data, the concern I think typically is whether that data is going to be sold or not. Um, and, and if somebody is going to use that data to give to someone else. And here Amazon with as large as it, as it is and as ambitious as it is, I think they just want the data for themselves. And, and they're trying to make the consumer, the customer experience as good as possible. And on the one hand, who wouldn't want that, right? It's it's great. Yeah. If we can have a great experience uh, throughout the entire day, whether we're online or offline, that's great. As you mentioned, though, it's a little bit creepy, uh, you know, if not sinister. Um, and, and so I, I think that that definitely plays into this purchase that they're just trying to learn as much as possible about all the activity that you or I might do. Yep, I think, like you said, we talk a lot at CompTIA even about how the customer experience. That seems to be one of the things, uh, the trends that we follow, and it's one of the things that those in the tech industry now are making you know, a priority. It's a strategy, is making the customer experience the best that it can be. And like you just said, who wouldn't want that? That's great. And one of the examples he used is, you know, um, collecting customer data on where they shop in the store and if you've got a customer who is consistently in the um the aisle that serves that sells asian type foods and ingredients and they're always buying stuff there uh then the next time they go on to amazon and they're browsing you know something pops up like recommended for you and it would be an asian cookbook i think that's kind of cool again i also think it's kind of scary um that they're watching me in the store and they know what i'm buying and then they're recommending books about it uh so it's uh this is one of those uh one of those debate topics you could have is this a good thing or is this a bad thing and i think it, it could be a little of both um i think you know if, if the data is protected um obviously there are lots of privacy uh, concerns about this uh this could just be a um, a generally good customer experience strategy, and that's the innocent way to look at it. If there is more going on here, or the potential for having stores of data on individual buyers, it, it could be exploited in any way. Then, obviously, then that is a, a big negative. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing leads to kind of how do we feel about this? Uh, okay. And and I think over the past 
two weeks. I don't, I don't know, as I've been looking on you know Twitter and reading things, I'm not sure that we've exactly figured out how we feel about it for, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, that, that it's, it's great to have the experience made better, but that can only be done through you know a single company in this case you know collecting a lot of information and being able to analyze that information and use it to improve a wide variety of daily life experiences right so i, I i'm not sure quite where where i land on it i i know that um in some of the presentations i made actually this past month um to some high school students I was making the point that uh, I think at a very high level, if you're thinking about Clayton Christensen and his uh, disruption theory and the innovator's dilemma, I think the internet itself is a new technology that has come in that is that is disrupting a lot of things over the past 20 years. And we're, we're almost even just beginning to get into the disruption zone that he would talk about. And I think that Amazon might be the first best example of a true internet company where a lot of the distribution challenges went away and a lot of the advantages that you might have had in controlling distribution have gone away. And and now you have this issue where you can be at massive scale, but how many players can there really be in that market? Or, or how many players are is the market going to, going to sustain? Um, and I, I don't know that we exactly know what the economics of that look like globally uh, and at, at a really macro level. And so it's difficult to apply things that we've thought for a long time about monopolies or business practices to this new world where we've got Internet companies like Amazon and, and Facebook would be the other one that I would really think of in this space that are doing things at scale that just prevent other competitors coming in and being able to replicate that or offer a new experience. Yeah, no, you, you hit on a great point. It's, it's not unlike what we're seeing in, you know, the cloud space, the public cloud. You know, I think at one point when we talked about cloud years ago, we thought, you know, there'd be a whole bunch of companies that were, you know, the cloud data center providers. And as we're seeing now, that is consolidating rapidly and, 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 and for good reason. Uh, why do we need, you know, smaller and medium sized cloud players um, when you've got you know behemoths who seem to be able to handle it all, and I think it's similar in this um, in this realm of of retail or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I, I think one of the good lines from uh, the Strategy uh, blog was you know that you know Amazon's not really a retailer; they don't actually make products and sell them. They're just a service provider, and if they can scale at the level that they are right now, you know how what how much room is there left for you know any others of this same size or type. Um, obviously, you can have specialty and niche type um, companies and uh, e-commerce, you know, internet companies, as you said, that will always be there to serve specific markets. But uh, as far as this big horizontal macro approach that Amazon has, it's all-encompassing, and and I think it's very very um, critical what you mentioned, you know, that how do we view our traditional views of monopolies in this company in in this country and how we deal with them? I mean, you think back to when you know the 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 browser stuff with Microsoft and is Microsoft becoming a monopoly? It was a little more cut and dried then. It was you, you thought of it the way that you would think of things over the Industrial Revolution and when monopolies were such, you know, really came to fore and when legislation was put into place and, and we had the antitrust rules that went in. And now, I don't know how that's applied anymore. I think we may, you know, as a, as a society and as a government have to rethink our definition. I even feel like 
it's going to change our view of geopolitics that you know up until now you've obviously had huge corporations but they've they've still been somewhat limited by scale and, and so sort of the largest entity that you might be able to imagine kind of swinging the the, the path of humanity would be nation states mm-hmm. and it, it feels like we're getting to a place where that actually can be a corporation now um and and so the question becomes like who who actually has more power is it Donald Trump or Theresa May or or whoever the leader of a nation state might be or is it Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or you know the CEOs of these incredibly massive corporations um it's an interesting question and I don't know that there's you know a, a good or bad conclusion to it. There, there's certainly going to be pros and cons on on both sides, but um, ultimately, I, I, I think the market and and the economy and, and just global politics and uh, and and interactions are going to move in one direction, you know, regardless of whether it's the optimal direction or or not. Yeah. No, it's a big. Big, heady topic uh, to think about, and I and, and I think you're right geopolitically. Who's who is going to be? I don't want to use the word leader, but be the. Uh, it's not trendsetter that I'm looking for, but who's really going to drive the direction of economies and governments? Um, for, you know, if, is it going to be the political leaders that are running our nations, the most powerful nations, or is it going to be um, these massive? corporate entities um, that are involved in every aspect of our life, if you think about it, and, and, um, and they are. You know, the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world uh, are not, you can't put them in um, a single bucket or even a couple of buckets. You can call them an internet company, um, but what does that mean? They're, you know, they really are involved in every aspect of the economy, and by extension, every aspect of us as consumers and as customers and as people and inhabitants of these nation states, as you said. Um, so it, it, it's going to be interesting. Um, you wonder if there'll be sort of a, have to be a crackdown at some point, like you see in, you know, China, for instance, you know, where there's a, in other countries where they have a lot tighter controls on, on, um, on the internet and on internet companies, or if it's just going to be sort of a wild west. It's very interesting. Well, that got heavy. Um, yeah, I know. Heavy for you know, before the holiday weekend here, but it was good. It, it's, we need um, to so- we need to solve this problem, Chris. So we need to figure it out. But, oh yeah, well, yeah. Uh, maybe by the time we we record the next podcast, we'll yeah. we'll figure it out. Over my July Fourth break, I'm going to figure out a solution to all of this madness. There you go. One last thing that we were talking about doing here was trying to. Instead of just looking at, you know, the news of the past two weeks or the research that we might be putting out, try to bring in some things that uh, we might have found that we think are interesting and might be interesting to our listeners. And so thinking about the weekend ahead and thinking about Big Drive that I'm going to do to Wisconsin, I'm going to be looking for some new podcasts, I think, a couple that'll uh, make the time pass. And one that isn't new to me, but it's got some new episodes coming out, uh, and I've got the latest one to listen to is Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. I love so, that one. Yeah. He just started the the second season of that. I guess podcasts have seasons now. 
and he just oh, started should, that a few weeks ago. We should figure out when the natural break in our season is, and mm. we can go over again. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess I guess you have seasons if you take breaks. We haven't been taking any breaks, so uh, we should do that. Yeah. Um, it'll be like a one week break, and then we'll start up the, the next season. Season two, yeah. Don't leave them waiting for too long. Um, so you've listened to the? I have not. I've started season two of Revisionist History, but you said you've heard, you've listened to the first two. Is yeah, I listened the- to the first couple, and yeah. uh, again, a lot of people are probably familiar with Malcolm Gladwell. Um, different people have different opinions on him. I think I find his approach really interesting. Uh, I think he has an intriguing way of finding connections and unearthing things about our society and things about our behavior that we never realized before. And so that's kind of what he does in this podcast. And the first one in particular looked at the game of golf. And I think he was specifically looking at golf courses in Los Angeles because he mentioned some golf courses in other places that didn't quite follow the model that he was exploring. But in Los Angeles, they don't have a lot of public parks, a lot of green space, They don't have a central park like New York City would have, but they have all of these private golf courses. And he dug into the ways that these golf courses have been funded, the ways that they have gotten tax breaks throughout the years, uh, and and the way in in his mind that it has become inequitable to the the public of Los Angeles. Um, So I just found it fascinating. and like I said, I've got I've got a new one on the deck that I, I can maybe listen to this weekend. Um, but if if anyone hasn't checked that out, I would encourage that one. That's a pretty good it, one. So it's not unlike if you think about it, it's not unlike what you know giant football stadiums um, do to the tax base in many companies. I mean, most of them are built on the ba- on the backs of the taxpayers' dime, so it's, it's not dissimilar. Um, right. I, I, I'm curious within the context of the podcast, the golf one. Did he talk about how the golf itself, though, the interest in golf is waning dramatically? It's almost a dying sport. Young people are not getting into golf. And soon enough, these all of these golf courses that are being underwritten by uh, you know the taxpayers and citizens uh, won't have any people on them because uh, it's aging out. Um, I will draw some corollary to the, uh, the channel a little bit there. <laughs> But, you know, it is an aging sport and is not the youth of America are not uh, are not joining. They're not on board. Uh, he, he didn't talk about the fact that it was um, aging out, but he he did talk about the fact that golf is a game played by rich, older people. And that has been a huge driving force behind these courses kind of getting set up the way that they have been. And again, you could almost begin to make a corollary to you know the country as a whole and um, how much the, the the top percentage of of wealthy people are able to drive and manipulate things. But yeah, he he called it in the podcast that that golf courses are are a form of aristocracy. So. Yeah. I, I believe it. Well, there's so much I could add to this in terms of um, com- comparisons to the direction our country is going right now, but I'll leave it at that. It is yeah. America's. It is America's birthday coming up next. Yeah, week. we'll we'll we hold patriotic. off from going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll be patriotic. But I'm off to Maine, so uh, for the weekend, spend it at the beach, and I'm looking forward to. I might even read some real books, like the the kind you hold in your hand. Uh, yeah, I know. So um, I will report back on um, which uh, book I hopefully get through, book or two maybe. 
while I'm away. And if there's any good ones, I'll talk about them on our next uh, our next volley. Well, that sounds good. Well, you have a great time in Maine then, and uh, and I will let you know how Wisconsin goes. And yeah. have a great holiday. Yep. We will talk when you get back. Have a lot of fun. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.